John chapter 11, verse 30. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, See how he loved him. But some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odour, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me. But I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. And if you closed it up, it'd be great if you could um, grab a Bible and uh, flick back to John chapter 11 again. It's on page 897. Don't know where you're coming from this morning as we tackle this question of God and suffering. It would be tempting uh, or easy to to tackle it as a philosophical problem, wouldn't it? Um, That was certainly my experience of uh, religious education uh, classes when we uh, did the topic of, of God and suffering. I don't know if this is your experience too. The, the teacher would start kind of um, throwing out these uh, big words that uh, none of us had any idea what they meant. So God is uh, omnipotent. He is omnipos- omniscient. See, I can't even say them. Uh, he is omnibenevolent. There's a good one if you don't know that one. He is omnivorous. He is uh, ambidextrous. He is bifocal, he's double-jointed, he's all these things, isn't he? And, and as the teacher would, teacher would throw them out, we would just look at one and say, this is just a game, isn't it? It's just a game. I, I don't know if you've ever thought that. When someone's talked to you about, about God and what God is like, you thought, it's just a game. Can we imagine a perfect being? Can we uh, uh, pump them up with steroids and throw them up into the heavens and worship them? that's not how Christians think about God. We don't think God up 
he comes down. And when he does come down and reveal himself to us, he does so in flesh and blood, as a person, as Jesus. You see, our suffering isn't philosophical, is it? It's personal to us. And so the answer to our question this morning comes um, in seeing how Jesus deals with it personally, which is why I've asked you to open your Bibles up again so that we can see him in action as he uh, responds to this family in crisis. I mean, that's what's going on here in in verse 1 of John 11, isn't it? Now, a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha, and it's their brother who's ill. And he's not just got man flu. Terrible though man flu can be, it's something much worse. It's going to get much worse. So his sisters, Mary and Martha, send for Jesus, verse 3. Do you see? Saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. And, and here we get the first of three shocks we're going to look at this morning. As we see Jesus, the God of love, who does nothing. I mean, he loved Lazarus. He, he loved this family. We see that really clearly in verse 5. So verse 6, when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Uh, now for me, <laughs> I expect love, love to mean that when I'm in trouble, those who love me, they pitch up. They come running. Uh, like for those of you who have, uh, have young children, um, uh, when, they, when they cry out in the middle of the night, they cry out in pain, you know, what do you do? You don't, you don't get out your diary and go, you know what, I've got a slot about a week on Tuesday. How's that? Would that do you? No. You come running. You, you, you go straight away. But Jesus doesn't. He does nothing. I suspect many of you know how that feels. There are times in life when something comes along, it's not a fly in the ointment, it's a, it's a hippo, and you, you can't see how you're going to get through it, get, get round it. Maybe you prayed. Maybe you begged. Maybe you waited. Maybe you cried. But heaven seems silent. There are times when it is hard to believe in the goodness of God, are there not? And this is one of those times This is one of those times for Mary and Martha. Why on earth doesn't Jesus drop everything and rush to Bethany? I mean, look at verse 5 again. He loved them. But look at verse 6 again. So, therefore, when he heard, he sat down and had a cup of tea. Because he loved them? He delayed? I mean, that's what it seems to be saying there. How does that work? Especially when when you think about what's going to happen next. Lazarus dies, and when news of that comes through to Jesus and his disciples, Jesus says to them in verse 14, Lazarus has died, and for your sake I am glad that I was not there. What? How could you be glad? No, no, no. We must read on. Look at what he says next. For your sake I am glad that I was not there, so that you may believe. A friend of mine was telling me earlier on, in the week uh, about how she was baking a cake and she put the cake mix into the oven and her daughter, her young little, little daughter, saw her doing it and, and cried out, cake! I want cake! And as any responsible mum would do, she said the word the toddler didn't want to hear. No. No. 
no cake. I mean, it's not baked yet. But the little bottom lip start to tremble. <laughs> the tears start to fall. But <laughs> I thought you loved me. Kids have no concept, have they, about how delay can lead to future advantage. I mean, you'll, you'll know that if you've taken a, a child, uh, again, a, a young child, uh, for vaccinations, for the jabs. You know, to them, it just seems like some random stranger just stabs them in the arm with a bit of metal and makes them cry. But you know better. You know that, yes, the pain is real, but it's only for a moment. And it is done. We can see that it is done to prevent something far worse from happening. And folks, that is what is going on here. Jesus is giving us a hint here at why he has delayed. It's part of a plan. A plan to prevent something much worse happening. A plan to help these sisters to see the one thing that their soul needs more than having their brother back. A plan which will bring them to fully trust and believe in him. Uh, Now that might sound really crass to you. I mean, come on, surely there is a a better way, an easier way (laughs) to help people believe in Jesus. Well, please hang on in there. Jesus is no heartless monster, as we need to see the second shock here. He is the God of power with tears in his eyes. Jesus may not have showed up when Lazarus was sick, but he pitches up to the funeral, which makes him a bit bold to you, the way he's let this family down. But when he does, he weeps so much that everyone else at the funeral comments on it. Look with me at verse 33. When Jesus saw her weeping, that's, that's Mary, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. And so we learn, folks, that God is not immune to the pain. And so if you are hurting this morning, Jesus wants you to know that he weeps with you. He feels your pain. In fact, he takes it very, very personally. Twice here in John 11, uh, we read that Jesus was deeply moved. And, and these words, are, they're originally written in Greek, and, and they, they, they more literally mean that he snorts with indignation. So what we've got going on here is that it's not that Jesus is just showing empathy. He's angry too. And we've got to ask, why? Why? Why is he angry? Well, the Bible tells us that for Jesus, pain and death are an intruder. They do not belong in God's world. And so Jesus doesn't just stand there distant and aloof from the pain and suffering of this world like the gods of Greek mythology. No, no, he, he, he cries out against it because this is not the way things were meant to be. I mean, open up the story of the Bible, not just now, but open up at the beginning and, and you'll read Genesis chapter one. You'll read that in the beginning, God made a world that was good. In fact, that keeps saying that over and over again. He made things and it was good, it was good, it was good. <laughs> and it is, it is good. The goodness is there because God is there. God is the source of all goodness. But then the people he makes, they reject his good rule. 
They push him and his word to the margins and, and then they fall into sin and suffering and, and death enters in too. Everything that was good has now been spoiled by our rebellion. And so we experience disease in the world. Because there was once good health that has now been spoiled. There are family breakdowns too because there were once good relationships that have now been spoiled. There is depression because there was good, healthy mental health that has now been spoiled. There is death too because there was once life, good life, that is decaying, has decayed and spoiled. Every experience we have of suffering in this world is an experience of this fallenness. But all of those experiences testify to an original and ultimate good. You see, even in a bad world, we can believe in a good God. We really can. Which is why God, when he pitches up to this funeral, he's not only sad, but he is angry. Angry that pain and suffering and death are now part of our reality. Angry that this good world he has made has been spoiled by our sin. And so we've got to realize that God is not immune to the pain, but also we are not immune from the blame. We recognize that there is a fallen world out there, but we've we've got to be honest and say there's fallenness in here too. And those two things are connected. The Russian novelist Alexander Solzhenitsyn experienced one of the many horrors of the 20th century, the gulags. He was an outspoken critic of the Soviet government, and so he was sent to one of these forced labor camps. And from it, he wrote that it would be, it would be really convenient to kind of, uh, to, if the world could be divided into goodies and baddies. And if the, uh, the dividing line between, between the, the, the baddies over there and, and uh, sorry, yeah, the baddies over there and the goodies over here could, could be there so that I could be on the right line with the goodies. But famously, Solzhenitsyn wrote, the line dividing good and evil runs down the middle of every human heart. There is evil out there. There, there really is. But there is evil in here. There really is. I contribute to the pain of this world and, and so do you. I have caused suffering in this world and so have you. In, in many ways, I'm a victim of the world. I'm a victim of evil, but I'm also a perpetrator of it. So it's a curious thing for me to ask God to rid the world of evil. Am I asking him to rid the world of me? Of course not. And that's not what God wants either. It'd be well within his rights to do that. But he is not content to leave us to the inevitable judgment that falls when we take the karma response to suffering, for example. There are two big responses, I think, to suffering in this world. There's the karma response and the chaos response. The karma response says, well, listen, if you do good, then good will come back to you. If you do bad, bad will come back to you. You get what you deserve, None of us deserve goodness from God. We don't, if we're honest. So then there's, well, that leaves us in the hands of the chaos response. 
which gets rid of God altogether and says, well, it's just a random world. I mean, that's, that's what Richard Dawkins says. He says the universe, it's got, at bottom, it's got no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. So if you get lucky, you get lucky. If you get unlucky, you get unlucky. And there's nothing we can do about it. But if you say it's random, you can't say it's wrong. And we can't have a problem with pain, with suffering. But it is wrong. We do have a problem with it. Jesus has a problem with this. All of our beings cries out against it. And not only does Jesus snort with anger at this funeral, he also actually invites us to have a problem with pain. Like, did you notice how believing in Jesus enables Mary and Martha to make a complaint? They both say the same thing, verses 21 and 32. It's, it's snap. Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. I mean, that's a statement of great faith, isn't it? Lord, you're so amazing. You know, nothing bad can ever happen in your presence if you had been here. But it's also a complaint, isn't it? Why weren't you here? Why didn't you come? And actually in the Bible, believers complain to the manager all the time. And he doesn't zap them. Because Jesus invites you to join him in having a real problem with suffering. And he also gives you a real solution to suffering too. Do you see that in verse 43? When he said these things, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to him, unbind him and let him go. My goodness, what an emotional roller coaster this is, isn't it? Wow. <laughs> he comes to the funeral. He, he cries more than anybody else. <laughs> and then he turns this funeral into a homecoming. Who is this Jesus? Well, here's shock number three. He is the God of resurrection who brings hope to the world. As in a matter of a few weeks, he will transform his own death. In a matter of, few, of a few weeks, he will endure the horror, the tragedy, the sacrifice, the, the sheer living hell of the cross. He will go through that for us. He will go through the valley of the shadow of death for us to pay for our sin. And he will come bursting out through the other side to resurrection glory. There really is a solution to suffering with Jesus and it is him. The goal of our existence, the the point of our suffering, if you like, is that we will find him. Not only so that we will take refuge in our suffering, in him, but so that he might pull us through the other side and find an end to our suffering. I've often put it like this, this that Jesus is like a needle that goes through the black death, uh, sorry, black shroud of death, and he, and he comes out the other side. All of, all of the rest of us, we're swallowed up by that black shroud. Uh, billions of battles have been fought with death, and no one has won a single one, apart from this guy, apart from Jesus. 
I know it's hard to believe, but there is a victor over the grave. There really is hope beyond the scope of this sin-stained, suffering-stained world. There really is hope beyond the certainty of death. As Jesus really did go through the black shroud of death and come out the other side, and, and if we are trusting in him, if, if we're connected to him, then we're like the thread that's attached to the needle. Pulled through on the same trajectory to the same destination. What is that destination? Well, if you read the end of the gospel accounts of Jesus' life, you get a foretaste of what that's going to be like. That's why the gospel, gospels actually give us encounters with Jesus when he rises again. Because it's meant to show us what we are looking forward to in heaven. And what we're looking forward to is it's not pie in the sky when you die. It's not polishing halos for the angels. No, when Jesus rises again, he goes for long country walks with his friends. That's the future. He stays up late at night chatting with his mates about the things that really matter in life. That's the future. He has tear-filled, joy-filled reunions. That's the future. He goes fishing with friends and has barbecues on the beach as they watch the sunrise. That's the future. If this Jesus story is true, isn't it worth investigating? Maybe that's something you need to do over the next few weeks. Because with Jesus, you have your one shot at a happy ending. I don't know if you've ever heard the story of Joni Erickson Tada. At the age of 17, fractured her, her spinal cord in a diving accident. And so for, well, she's in her 60s now, and so she's been a quadriplegic for the last half century and confined to a wheelchair. And yet she says, with hope, only Jesus offers me a new spinal cord. Only Jesus. Only Jesus offers hope to these bodies and this world. So what are you going to do? Here we are, we're walking through the valley of the shadow of death. We all are, that's where we are. It's inevitable. And you say to me, oh, it's really horrible here. There is so much pain, there's so much suffering, there's such darkness. Yes, I know, I know. Now follow that thought. It's right to have a problem with suffering. God does. He hates it even more than we do. So don't throw your problem with suffering at him. Bring it to him. Come to Jesus. And there you'll find the solution to suffering because he he shows up in the midst of your grief and he cries with you. He will weep and he will walk with you every step of the way through this life, through the valley of the shadow of death. And he will bring you out through the other side fully and finally set free from sin and pain and suffering. There really is an end to suffering. But only if we trust Jesus. So let me finish with John 11 verse 25. Jesus said to her, to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, Though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Well, do you? Maybe as I read that there, 
Do you believe this? You, you felt something in your heart that, that you've come to the point of being able to say, I think I do. For some of you, this is the first time you've ever had anything like this. And, and as I say, maybe you need to investigate this a little bit further. But for some of you, you've been coming to church for, for a long while now. And you've been looking into this for a while. And, and you've now realized, yes, I believe in Jesus. I do. I believe he is the resurrection and the life. I, and I want him to come into my life and walk with me and take me home to be with him forever. Well, you can have that today. Jesus is just a prayer away. And so I've got a slide that we're going to put up on the screen now that's got a prayer that you can pray. It says this, dear Jesus, I recognize who you are. You are Lord. You are light. I, on the other hand, am lost in the dark. I need you. Thank you for dying for me. Thank you for rising to give me new life. Please forgive me for my sin and selfishness. Come into my life and lead me through this life and into eternity. Amen. Those words aren't magic. They're just simply a way of starting a relationship with the, the God who weeps with you and who wants to walk with you all the way through your life and who wants to give you a real hope. I'm going to pray this prayer. And if you do want to echo the words of this prayer in your heart, you can say them silently to Jesus. Let me pray. Dear Jesus, I recognize who you are. You are Lord. You are light. I, on the other hand, am lost in the dark. I need you. Thank you for dying for me. Thank you for rising to give me new life. Please forgive me for my sin and selfishness. Come into my life and lead me through this life and into your eternity. Amen.